So, Rachel, I was reading the issues for this episode, and man, it super sucks to be Havoc in this era. Oh, Miles, it always sucks to be Havoc. His life is, like, multiversally miserable. Multiversally? How's that work? Ever heard of Mutant X? The TV show? No, the TV show has nothing to do with the Marvel Universe. I'm talking about the 32-issue ongoing slog of misery and death where Havoc spent 1998 through 2001. What was the deal with that again? Okay, so remember when Havoc was in charge of X-Factor? I thought that was Cyclops. No, the other X-Factor. The one with Madrox. Right. So X-Factor Investigations. No, no, the other, other X-Factor, the government team. Oh, the Val Cooper X-Factor. Exactly. Anyway, for a while, they worked with this dude named Greystone, who was from Bishop's Future. The one with the Summer's Rebellion. Yeah, that one. Greystone was gradually losing his mind because of temporal instability, and he tried to build a flying time machine, which exploded, killing Greystone and shunting Havoc over to Earth-1298, where he replaced that universe's Havoc, who had just been killed by a Sentinel. Wait, is that the Earth with the super goth X-Men? The Six, yeah, that's the one. Bloodstorm, The Fallen, Madeline Pryor who on Earth-1298 is actually married to Havoc. They've got a kid, too, Scotty, who's the only person who believes that 616 Havoc isn't his real dad. Cyclops-1298 is Havoc's kid? No, Cyclops-1298 is the leader of the Starjammers. Cool. Right? He's basically the only well-adjusted Scott Summers in the multiverse. Anyway, everything goes to hell pretty fast. Madeline gets possessed by the Goblin Entity. Like the Goblin Queen. Kinda. Only in Mutant X, it's revealed to be this massive omnidimensional force which first possesses Madeline, then teams up with a couple of heavy hitters to try to take down reality itself. Ah, that's not good. Who? Ah, uh, you know, the usual suspects. The Beyonder. Oh, God. And Dracula. What?! Rachel Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we're here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 72 of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. Okay, so we are going back to Uncanny X-Men this time around. It's been a while. It's been a while, but you know this does really fit with some of the other episodes we've been doing, and that things remain pretty dark and pretty dire. And I should qualify that we may sound a little off this week, because the Pacific Northwest is pretty much literally on fire. There are basically massive, massive wildfires going on in, in Washington and eastern Oregon right now, which is terrible enough in itself. But also, a large amount of the smoke from all of those is pulling in the Willamette Valley where we live, so if we seem a little raspier than usual, we have a pretty good excuse. That being said, if you're in one of the areas that's on fire, we really hope you're okay. Yeah, thinking of you guys. Good luck. Hopefully by the time this goes up in a week from now, the fires will actually be out. Ah, uh, yes, yes indeed. Okay, Uncanny X-Men. So I think we should probably go over a little bit of what they've been up to, specifically what they've been up to as far as the members of the team, because that's going to be kind of a big deal this time around. Yeah, we've seen the roster shaken up really substantially by the Mutant Massacre, and we've also got a bunch of new members on the team. This really feels like a major sea change. We've seen the lineup shift incrementally, you know, throughout Claremont's run over the years, but we just lost more than half the team, replaced a bunch, and this is really kind of the era where we're building the team that's going to be following the book to Australia. Right. So, you know, we do, of course, still have Magneto leading the school. I know we mention this every time, and it's been going on for a really long time, but I think it still bears mentioning, because if anyone were to jump into our show later, like, Magneto leading the X-Men, leading the Xavier Institution, is not something most people think of. Also, we like to say his name a lot. Magneto! Magneto. Oh man, that was actually not scripted, we just did that. No, we, we weren't actually trying to do that in unison, it just happened. Man, you know somebody for, like, 20 years, this happens, I Sometimes guess. Sometimes you just say Magneto at the same time, it's weirdest when it's in, like, the middle of the night, or, or at a wedding, or whatever. Funerals are the worst. Awkward. Yeah. But anyway, so he's running the school. The Mutant Mass that took out a few of the X-Men, specifically Colossus 
Nemesis is paralyzed, Nightcrawler is comatose, and Shadowcat is gradually dissipating into nothingness, like she's going to die, it looks like. So the remaining members of the team coming out of the massacre were Storm, Wolverine, Rogue, and of course Magneto. And they've gained a few members since as well. So Psylocke, Captain Britain's younger sister, has gone from sort of a trainee to a full member of the team. Dazzler has recently rejoined after realizing how dangerous it is to be a mutant out in the world. She was possessed briefly by Malice during the mutant massacre. And Longshot, who they actually found before the massacre, but then promptly sort of forgot for a few issues, is now actually back on the team proper. And this is kind of the first major shakeup of membership we've ever seen in the X-Men. Or at least the first one that happened all at once. Again, we've seen the membership shift really substantially over time, over the 100 plus issues of Claremont's run, but it's been incremental. You know, we saw Cyclops leave, we saw, you know, Jean die, we saw Kitty come in and Rogue join the team. But again, those happened gradually. Those happened, you know, one or two people at a time and over a very, very long run. And this has all been in like a five issue period. Now, Chris Claremont has talked a number of times about how one of his goals when he was writing X-Men was to have the team have kind of a revolving door. You know, members would come and go, they would age out or die or whatever. And I think this is the first time that's really paid off in a big, noticeable way. Right now, it's worth mentioning the team is actually split. Storm and Wolverine are in New York, and we looked in on them, I think, last time we covered on Kenny X-Men. Another group of members, the basically the junior members of the team plus Rogue, are currently in Muir Island in Scotland, where they were sent with the Morlocks, basically as a guard group, and to kind of clear the playing field so Storm and Wolverine could figure out what they were going to do next. Now, that group is Rogue. Again, she's the ranking senior member of that subset of the team. Also, Psylocke, Longshot, and Dazzler, and they are staying on Muir Island with Dr. Moira McTaggart and her gentleman friend, Sean Cassidy, who you might know better as Banshee. So Banshee was like a pretty good X-Man. I mean, I've gone on record, and by record I mean this podcast, as saying that I really, really like Banshee and I think he should get more credit. So you're saying you've gone on MP3? I've gone on MP3 as saying, yes. That said, you know, he was a good X-Man. I think he's better in this role as this kind of background mentor figure. Yeah, I mean, we're going to see him come into that really properly and on an ongoing basis in the Generation X series many years from now. Many years, at least in X-Men time, probably multiple years in podcast time because it's pretty far out. It is. But honestly, that's the role that he seems to settle into most comfortably. Even from his recruitment in Giant Size X-Men number one, he expresses reservations. You know, he's older. He's basically retired from crime fighting. And he just kind of wants to be a dude and live a life. And so he ends up settling much more comfortably and much more confidently into that mentor role. I believe the last time he was on the X-Men as an active member of the team, his powers were knocked out long, long, long ago when they were fighting Moses Magnum. Yeah, he stuck around in the team for a while, but it was pretty clear pretty quickly that it was not going to be a permanent thing after Moses Magnum. Moses Magnum, a character mainly remembered for not very much. He had mandroids. He did have mandroids, that's true. And a really good name. I mean, Moses Magnum, it's very satisfying to say. Yeah, I remember talking about him and making a lot of Moses Magnum PI jokes. Yes, we did. So these newer X-Men and Rogue are on Muir Island, they're training, and that's actually where we open up with the first issue we're going to be covering. That's Uncanny X-Men 217, and it specifically opens with Psylocke in peril. So Psylocke is, again, a telepath. She is Captain Britain's younger sister, Betsy Braddock, and something is hunting her, is chasing her, which turns out to be her fellow X-Men. And I'm going to complain briefly about this opening because we get it from a third person omniscient perspective, but focused on her. And it's treated as this, you know, big reveal. Why are they fighting? Who's hunting her? And it turns out it's a training exercise. So she knows this. 
And there's no reason for it to be treated as, as a mystery. There's no reason for the omniscient narrator who's giving us sort of her point of view to treat it as a big mystery, but they still do. And it just feels like such a cheap reveal. You know, I feel like Claremont's standard opening has kind of changed over the years. We've talked a lot about the Danger Room open, where we start an issue off in the Danger Room, where we can kind of show the characters' powers and their personalities and stuff like that. Or sometimes and, the soccer cold open if it's the New Mutants. Yeah, and these days it's like a deception cold open because so often at the beginning of an arc, it's a training exercise, it's a dream, it's an alternate reality, it's something else, and on page like three or something, we find out what's up. But see, that's a really cheap twist. There are twists that are good where something changes and something is revealed because something significant has changed, because something significant has been learned. And this is a twist that just comes from the author withholding critical information, and to me that feels cheap. That's a fair point, I think. But regardless, yeah, it's these X-Men training and, you know, they don't work very well together, which kind of makes sense. They haven't had much of a chance to. Well, and they don't have a clear leader. The ranking X-Men at this point is Rogue. And while she's very much come into her own as a member of the team, she's also very actively and continually eschewed leadership positions. She's never really offered one, but she's also never really looked for a reason to take one. And I think part of that is because her membership on the team started out so uncertain. She was a supervillain who was basically allowed to stay at the Xavier Institute because her powers had spun out of control. No one really trusted her at first. It's taken her a very, very long time to feel at home on the X-Men at all, let alone like stand up and take charge to any degree. Yeah. And I mean, there's Dazzler. She's been a superhero, both solo and an occasional team member for a long time. Kind of a team member. She is not a team player. And we we see that intensely in this issue in general. Yeah, she's really only a part of the team at all, reluctantly, just because she realizes it's crazy dangerous out there for mutants right now. And so, you know, if she's going to survive, she needs to be with other people. Longshot is basically a happy-go-lucky tabula rasa. We saw him in the Longshot series. He had a pretty distinct personality, even though he had pretty serious amnesia. This Longshot doesn't really yet. He's like a really bland Zonker Harris, maybe? I keep going back to that. <laughs> We're really doing the deep cuts here with the references. Doonesbury is not a deep cut. It has been around for decades. It is iconic. It has won Pulitzer Prizes. The entire society of political cartoonists objected to it winning a Pulitzer Prize. Really? I didn't yeah, know that. Trudeau actually signed the petition after he found out that the prize couldn't be revoked. <laughs> That's kind of awesome. Actually, can I talk about Doonesbury for a second? I think I've mentioned this before, but I've been going back and rereading a lot of it recently. And the extent to which I feel like it was my gateway drug to X-Men is something I think is sort of worth touching on. You know, I mean, it's sort of a well-written soap opera about characters who are quite multifaceted. It's got some political issues built in. I believe it. Well, it's super, super long running. And again, by the time I came into it, it had been around for decades. I first read it, you know, in the form of those great little digests. Mm -hmm. One summer, we lived really near this used bookstore where you could get them for a quarter. And I just bought like 20 of them and read all the way through. And it's got that complex, convoluted soap opera, those incredibly unlikely character intersections. Actually, Trudeau as a Sunday strip once did a character relationship chart. And yeah, I feel like it was kind of grooming me to grapple with this kind of chronology and continuity. Plus, you remember that one time that Mike Dunesbury got turned into death by apocalypse? That, that was, was fucked rough. up, yeah. right? Mostly, I now really want to see Longshot do Zonker's gentle freak speech. I love this plan. Upon his death, when he ascended to Nirvana and was rewarded with his weight in uncut Turkish hashish. Man. I don't think we would see that in X-Men, but that would be wonderful. But I do want to come back to Longshot a little bit later, because I think this is important. I mean, I'm a big Longshot fan. He's probably my favorite X-Men character, as much as he's only kind of an X-Men character. And so I find it very interesting the way he's written by Chris Claremont as a member of the X-Men versus the way Anne Nascenti wrote him as a solo character. Finally, there's Psylocke. And Psylocke is fairly flexible. She's dedicated. She is very, very green. But I think in terms of, you know, being there for the right reasons and knowing what she's doing, she's probably the strongest of them. But they are a really unlikely group and they're a really oddly balanced team. 
They remind me of a particularly poorly planned Dungeons and Dragons party. Oh man. Okay. So Rogue is sort of the veteran gamer who's like, okay, fine. I'll play the fighter because obviously our party needs one because you've all chosen really weird secondary classes. And like Dazzler is the character whose player is super into the role-playing aspect of it and has a relatively well-balanced character, but just hasn't really thought about how the mechanics and the personality are going to interact or even how she's going to be on the team at all. No, she's the player who doesn't understand that it's a group thing, that she can't be the protagonist. Right, totally. And so we've got Longshot, and Longshot is kind of like a really low-key chaos gamer who's just like, well, I made this fun concept and I haven't really considered how it's going to interact with this reality, but whatever, just going to run with it. And uh, Psylocke is sort of, I, I feel like every D&D party has like a team dad or a team mom, like the player who realizes, okay, if we're going to get through these adventures, I need to steer these other characters vaguely on track. See, I think that's rogue. I think Psylocke is like the really well-intended new kid who's like, you know, who asks all the right questions, who plays a cleric because she's the last one to make the character. And she's like, well, what do you need? What would it be helpful for me to play? And, you know, is really trying to follow the rules, but is stuck with this weird sort of chaos, messy set and, and a GM who's trying to steer things on track, but just eventually throws up their hands in frustration. Well, anyway, point being, they're not very good as a team yet. They are not. And so they kind of reconvene after this. And Banshee, who is hosting this kind of breakfast meetup after the training exercise, tells them as much. I mean, he doesn't really pull any punches there. And during this breakfast, there's one of my favorite long shot lines like ever. At least one of my favorite Claremont longshot lines. Dead burnt animal flesh and unborn baby birds. Yum! What would happen if you put Longshot and Warlock in a room together? I think they might just merge into one great big sphere of innocence and consume all of reality. Aw, or make friends with it. Uh, one of the two. So anyway, Banshee is frustrated with their lack of teamwork, and Dazzler in particular is feeling more and more out of place and more and more generally quashed by her presence on the team. This is something we saw when she was touring with Lila Cheney too. Dazzler wants to be the protagonist. She wants a solo series, and she's stuck in a team book, and she's really unhappy about it. I'm a singer. All I ever wanted was to make people happy, to bring some light and color and joy into their lives. Not maybe end them. I hate this island. I hate this life. I hate the X-Men. Almost as much as I need them. Aw, Dazzler. And so, yeah, she basically just runs away. She gets on a boat and sails off to Ullapool, which is the nearest town in Scotland. Well, she gets in a fight with Callisto, who's also there. Callisto's the leader of the Morlocks, and she's traveled there with her largely dead or dying people. And she just has no, no patience for Dazzler's bullshit. Yeah. And so Dazzler being frustrated at not doing well as part of the team being really angry at Callisto over the words she said. She's like, screw this, I'm out of here. And makes one of the weirder references. This is only pretend. I've seen and done too much. My powers mark me as deeply as the scarlet letter did Hester Prynne. Dazzler, no, that's not that's not really how it how it worked. Just because you read the book doesn't mean you understand the book, Do you think she read the book? I think she's just alluding to the book, you know, from the general cultural consciousness of the book. I don't think Dazzler has actually read the scarlet letter. This reminds me of my big brother from 1984. Well done, Mr. Stokes. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so Ullapool. We've actually seen Ullapool before, and part of that may just be because, you know, it's near Muir Island. But this is also where Legion went off to the last time the New Mutants met up with him. I feel like Chris Claremont has been to Ullapool and is really excited to tell us about it. Once she gets to Ullapool, Dazzler heads to the pub where she parties hard. She's dancing and singing and hooking up with a beefy bald man in a kilt and a turtleneck. And they are headed off for some beefy, bald, kilted, turtlenecked fun when a huge dude in a car almost runs them over. And Dazzler recognizes this gentleman as the one and only Kane Marco, the Juggernaut. Now, she's never actually met the Juggernaut. She's just like, hey, I read about this dude in the X-Men's files. He sounds dangerous. I'm sure he's up to no good. I'm going to steal a motorcycle and go after them. This is how like two thirds of the X-Men's fights with the Juggernaut start. He's in public in his civilian identity, just kind of being a dick, but not really like a super villainous dick. And they're like, fuck it. Let's just fight him. Right. 
poor juggernaut. Well, I, I would really. say poor juggernaut, but he really is a dick. That's true. I mean, he's terrible, but they are usually the ones who escalate disproportionately, or at least who start doing that. The X-Men are not great about this in general. Well, and specifically, Allison Dazzler is not great about this right now. I mean, it makes sense. She's really frustrated. She's annoyed with the world. And honestly, she's never been the most mature character in all of her appearances. Yeah, so she leaves her kilted gentleman friend in the dust and bikes off to go pick a fight with the juggernaut, who, as it turns out, doesn't want to fight her at all and, in fact, recognizes her because he's a huge fan. Dazzler? No fooling. Fantastic! I got your records, I saw you perform, I love your music, but oh man, I never thought I'd actually meet you, this is great! Aw, man. (laughs) And so he actually apologizes to her, he's like, hey, I'm sorry, I didn't realize that was you, but I have a job to do, so I'm gonna go do that, you know, it was great to meet you. And Dazzler's like, oh, no, 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 fuck this, we're throwing down right here, right now. Which is really just a terrible decision on a lot of levels. First of all, she's taking on the juggernaut alone. Second, I mean, he basically just said, you know, I'm on my way somewhere else. Nice to meet you. Will you sign my records and then I can head off? Sorry, I almost ran you over. That was a dick move. Yeah, but you know, I lose a lot of sympathy for the Juggernaut as this progresses because, yes, Dazzler does attack him. And, you know, that's probably not a good or nice thing to do on her part since he hasn't done anything more than mildly dickish. But Well, you know, I'm going to go ahead and say that harassing and especially violently harassing pedestrians from a car is pretty heavily into the, like, threatening someone with a deadly weapon zone. Well, okay, fair point. But as she fights him, uh, you know, pretty ineffectively because he's almost indestructible when he's in his full Juggernaut guy. He gets really weird and not okay. Like, specifically a little bit later on, when he's effectively almost defeated her. Next fellow you get uppity with might not be as nice. You're a singer, doll. You're real good. Do yourself a favor. Stay a singer. Okay, gender-wise, this is kind of messed up. I don't know if Claremont intended it this way, but this really reminds me of the whole, I mean, effectively men telling women what they can and cannot be or do or act like. The whole, why don't you smile, you look nicer, to a random female passerby on the street. That's not okay. The idea that men can control female agency, female identity, and that's very much, I think, what's on display here. Yeah, the language in there, I mean, you noticed this first when we were talking about it, that the language in there is coded really, really heavily in that direction. You know, him basically throughout the fight being like, you know, you shouldn't be doing this. Why are you doing this? He goes from sympathetic to really deeply creepy, and even at his nicest kind of paternalistic. Right. So Dazzler just keeps on fighting and keeps on fighting, and she saves up all of her power for one big blast of light directly to his face. Which does nothing. And she collapses at his feet, and he's pretty sure, like, I don't know how this happened, but I have killed her. Does he wear gloves? Maybe maybe his hands are just, like, too super juggernaut beefy to actually feel for a pulse? That would be my assumption, because by the time the next issue rolls around, Allison Blair wakes up, buried alive. Thankfully, she's buried under rocks, so she's pretty much okay, but she can't move. She's got no power left. She's basically helpless and stuck, and I actually really love this part, because Allison's not terribly mature, but she is very good at keeping cool under pressure. So she thinks to herself, alright, what do I do? Well, I need sound to charge up my light powers, and then once I have my light powers, I can maybe get out. So, what do I hear? She hears bugs crawling around under the dirt, she hears a nearby underground river, and in combination over a brief period of time, they give her enough charge not to blast out, but to basically send up a beacon which the X-Men key in on. I really like Dazzler's rescue because even more than the fight scenes that follow it, it emphasizes how much more the X-Men can do when they work as a team because this is something that really calls for all of them, I guess, except for maybe Longshot. Dazzler, with her powers, is able to send up a flare. Psylocke notices that, keys in on her telepathically. Rogue is strong enough to get her out fast. And that's something that no one, even no two of them could have done. And that's something we really see in this entire era. 
ever since the Marauders got out there, ever since the Mutant Massacre, it is just not safe to be a mutant anywhere. And if you're going to survive, you need to survive as part of a group, be it the Morlocks or the X-Men or the New Mutants or whatever. Well, maybe don't do the Morlock thing. That didn't go so well last time. So it's nice that the mechanics of the story really reinforce that theme and reinforce something that I think has always been a strength of the entire X-Men line. Teamwork. Yo, no one's alone and we always need teamwork. That's how we save the universe. So when you see that X on the belt of like one man, a woman, know that there's probably tons more of them coming. And the X-Men are happy about this, too. They're all celebrating and hugging Longshot's finding his role on the team, which is being the one of them who's really good at hugs. Rogue, I really like. She doesn't join in the group hug because she's being all, you know, goth and emo about how she can never touch anybody, etc. They're all covered in fabric. Well, nonetheless. And so, uh, sort of frustrated. Like, you know how sometimes if you're standing at the edge of a lake and you're frustrated, you skip stones? I guess that's a very specific situation. But I feel like I'm not the only one that has done that. You're not. So she actually skips a stone into space. She throws a rock into space. She just chucks it into space. It's great. When you're rogue, you can do these things. And so the X-Men, after they've gathered their strength again, after Dazzler is feeling good to go, they're like, well, okay. And they just heard on the radio that the Juggernaut has moved on to Edinburgh. And they're like, all right, let's go do this rogue lift up the Jeep and let's fly around and let's go see what that dude is up to. This is kind of the arc of flying Jeeps. It really is. Like, Polaris makes her and Havoc's Jeep fly later on. Later on, yeah. Maybe all Jeeps just fly, and it's just that Rogue is sort of hanging on, like, you know, just sort of resting her hand on it. Huh. All right, in the Marvel Universe, all Jeeps fly. Nobody talks about it because it's so commonplace that it's not worth mentioning. This is canon as of now. Okay. Yeah. So they get to Edinburgh. And they fight the Juggernaut. And, you know, for the most part, it's just a fight. But there is this one part I really like, which is with him and Longshot. So Juggernaut is blasting through a civilian area. And Longshot, you know, tells him, These people have done you no harm. Why do you smash their homes? They're in my way, just like you. Hold still, blasted. So you can hit me? (laughs) That's silly. And this is really emblematic, I think, of Longshot in this sort of specific era when he first shows up on the team. We saw him as this very dedicated, conflicted, thoughtful, innocent, yes, but also very savvy in his own way character in Anasenti's solo series where he first appeared. Here he's just this sort of childlike entity, you know? He doesn't really have that kind of internal life. It's never entirely clear to me how much of that is literally long shot and how much of it is just him being playful. Because like the, so you can hit me, that silly line. You know, very much does read like playfulness, like he's just sort of riffing on Juggernaut. But he's such a sort of low-key, innocent, happy-go-lucky character that it's really hard to tell. It is. But we've definitely lost something in Longshot, and I think that's deliberate. I mean, he's had his memories erased after presumably failing in the rebellion in the Mojoverse that he went into at the end of his own series. So I think having him be simpler, there's actually a bit of melancholy under that, if you're familiar with the character that I enjoy. We've mentioned when we talked about him specifically, I think in the episode of Mullets and Miracles, that Longshot is a really fundamentally sad character because every time he drops into Earth, it's because he has lost catastrophically at his attempts to free the Mojoverse and his memory's been wiped and he's starting over again. Yeah. But regardless, the fight continues, Juggernaut wins, and the X-Men have to pursue him again. And as we see the Juggernaut destroying more of Edinburgh, we have an awesome, awesome reference as some of the locals are talking about how they should call Captain Britain or Brigadier Lethbridge Stewart. Okay, I feel like we should talk about this because we're going to have two groups of listeners recognize that name. And one is going to be people who read Excalibur and the other one is going to be Doctor Who fans. Yeah, now this specifically is a Doctor Who reference, both because of the spelling and the fact that Lethbridge is part of the name. Brigadier Alistair Gordon Lethbridge-Stewart, C-M-G-C-B-E-D-S-O, is the head of unit in the Doctor Who universe. He was a character uh, way back starting in, I think, the 70s. Yeah, the third Doctor basically hung out with unit through most of his lifetime because of budget cuts preventing him from exploring as many extraterrestrial quarries as was the standard. And so, yeah, Lethbridge-Stewart was basically his... I don't think the Doctor really gets to have a commanding officer, frequent sidekick, maybe. 
But he's also the namesake of Brigadier Allison Stewart of the Weird Happenings organization of, you know, the Marvel Universe, who has actually a younger brother named Alistair, who is not a brigadier, but yeah. is going to be Kitty Pride's running crush through like the first half of Excalibur. Yeah, they're going to be major, major characters. But yes, I had to double check. This is, in fact, the character from Doctor Who actually in this issue, not the Stewarts we'll later see in Excalibur. Good God. So they're fighting, and for various reasons, a train's about to be derailed. So Psylocke and Dazzler go after the Juggernaut. Rogue just picks up Longshot, and she's like, all right, I'll figure out a way to stop the train, figuring that she'll use her strength to try to stop it. And I really love this part because she just sort of tosses Longshot into the train, figuring, well, he's got these luck powers. I'm sure this will accomplish something. I'm sure something good will happen. That's a really terrific metaphor for Longshot's general narrative use during this era. Like, it kind of feels like just tossing him into the team in the stars is being like, oh, we'll, we'll figure out something to do with him. Exactly. But regardless, Dazzler manages to get Juggernaut's helmet and then Skullcap off. Okay, what is up with the Skullcap? Because he's got this Skullcap under his helmet and he mentions, you know, it's too bad that you've left on my Skullcap, which has the exact same powers as my helmet. What the hell? I figure, okay, it didn't take up another head slot. So he's like, screw it. It doesn't really add to my encumbrance very much. And my strength is high anyway. Let's just wear that too. You're really riding this D&D thing. Yes, I am. To the very end. Okay. To the last boss. All right. So, you know, long story short, they do beat the Juggernaut, only to find that, in fact, the Juggernaut was just in Edinburgh because he was distracting, you know, whatever superheroes or law enforcement were around from his partner, Black Tom Cassidy, who was off robbing the Bank of Scotland. This happens literally all the goddamn time, to the extent that I would expect superheroes to start catching on to the fact that a Juggernaut rampage pretty much always means that Black Tom is somewhere else doing other crimes. And every time they pull it off successfully, I really want there to be a little, like, Go Team Venture-style graphic where they just go, crime bros! and fist bump or something because they're great they are crime bros for life oh wait 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 but black tom it wouldn't be a fist bump it would be like juggernaut's fist and black tom shillelagh because i love saying shillelagh and that's the only reason i brought that up and then black tom would wink and there'd be like a little bit of a lens flare i um, love this plan. A grin and then the screen would go black and it would be the credits or, or commercials or something but yeah you know they are good crime bros they are in a committed crime bro relationship they are so, okay, one thing I do want to point out about this scene, because, you know, there's the stuff going on with the X-Men, whatever, but there are also these two random Scottish dudes who are watching. Wild, ain't it, Jordy? The one last lights up the park bright as noonday, while the other repairs the railway all by her lonesome. Thank you for not trying to do the accents there. Ain't proper, Rupert. Neither of them is union. Tis our work they're doing. Suppose management hires permanent like Where'll we be then, eh? Okay, so I love these guys. I love just the random, like, blue-collar dudes who are commenting on all of this, and I just want them to show up all the time. These guys clearly, like, speak to something deep within you, Miles. You've been talking about them for, like, three days. Okay, so they just embody this archetype, you know? I mean, we don't really see the differences between them very much, but I feel like if they talked more, we would see which of them is the Burt, which of them is the Ernie, whatever. They actually also kind of remind me of uh, Statler and Waldorf, you know, from the Muppets. I can't believe how many issues the X-Men have! I can't believe we paid money for these issues! (laughs) (laughs) It would be amazing. And that's basically that. You know, the X-Men are victorious, and everything is fine. But not really. Which brings us to Uncanny X-Men 219, in which everything is decidedly not fine. Now, as this stuff has been going on on Muir Island, there's also been a B-plot that we haven't talked about, because it's what leads up to X-Men 219, and we're going to look at that now. This is set in New Mexico, and it centers around Alex Summers and Lorna Dane, Havoc and Polaris, who have been doing their damnedest to be, you know, regular grad students, and sometimes succeeding. Well, I feel like they actually do an okay job, because they were members of the X-Men back in the Silver Age, and we've only seen them a few times uh, since then. Yeah, they basically come back when they get possessed or coerced into coming back, neither of them wants to be a superhero. They really just want to finish their damn dissertations. 
And man, this is the joke that's not going to be going away, but I really want Alex's codename to just be ABD. All but dissertation. Yeah, yeah, it should be. It's so sad. Like this whole issue, man, we talked about this in the cold open, but it sucks so hard to be Alex Summers. Mm -hmm. In the short term, the way in which it most immediately sucks to be Alex Summers is that he and Lorna are driving on a supply run and get run off the road by a VW minibus. They go over a precipice, they crash. And Alex, because he has the decision-making skills of a mayfly, decides that the thing to do at this point immediately, like within minutes of the crash, is to strip off half his clothing and rig the remains of the Jeep canopy into like a makeshift shelter. Okay, he's got great abs, and I'm assuming he went to some kind of Boy Scout thing, and he wants to show that off. You know, if you got it, flaunt it. Well, as it turns out, once Polaris regains consciousness, they decide to go for an exciting round of car wreck sex. It's actually kind of a tongue twister and also a really great metaphor as a phrase for Havoc's entire romantic history. Oh, I think you're kind of right. Yeah, I really am right. Yeah. Do you remember that one nurse from Chuck Austin's run? That was bad times. Yeah, that was really bad times. Do you remember like literally every relationship he's been in? Yeah, yeah, yeah pretty much. Yeah, it's not good. Anyway, Havoc and Polaris are basically okay. And because Polaris has magnet powers, they're able to basically just pick the Jeep back up and put it back on the road. And it miraculously runs. They're trying to figure out who was in the bus because people who drive VW buses through New Mexico generally aren't ultra aggressive. And they vaguely remember seeing a group of campers coming by. So they decide to check by the campsite, see if they're okay, see if some 'er ne'er-do-wells have stolen their bus. And what they find at the campsite is something else entirely. The campsite is empty, save for a fucking shark from outer space. I mean, I feel like that happens a lot. You know, these invasive sharks from outer space, somebody brought them over on a ship from Europe and all of a sudden. Also understand, you know, I could be using this phrase allegorically or metaphorically. No, it is literally, it is a shark from outer space that has flopped across the campsite. Now, we've seen sharks from outer space before, that being when the brood, the evil space aliens who will get inside your body and give birth to new broods and make you die, when they've shown up before, they have star sharks, which they fly around in. And this is one of those, and Alex and Lorna say, this is bad news, we've got to warn the X-Men. That all happened over the course of Uncanny 217 and 218, and 219 opens with Alex having a horrific nightmare about the X-Men, where he tries to go to the mansion and they all just attack him. They're these demonic, monstrous versions of themselves. He wakes up with his powers spinning out of control, sprints outside and fires them off into the night sky. And man, we haven't seen much in the way of story that actually focused on Havoc. And I feel like we should take a minute and talk about him as a character. We should. Because I think a lot of people just remember Havoc as, you know, Cyclops' kid brother. And that's about it. They remember maybe his powers as well, but not anything about his personality. Yeah, the marginally worse Summer's brother. I, I believe emergency uh, backup summers. Brother? I, I believe those are in fact your words for much earlier in the show. Yes, he kind of is. But he's actually a really interesting character, and as he becomes a main player in X Men for quite a while, starting with this era, he gets really fascinating, and nobody remembers that. He is so tragic to me because he's a character who knows what he wants to do. He's got a life outside of the X Men, outside of superhero teams, and he just keeps getting dragged back in. Havoc's long term story is one of just increased resignation and misery. He doesn't want leadership of government run teams, he doesn't want to be a superhero at all, and he really doesn't want to powers. Now, the obvious point of comparison for Havoc on a lot of fronts is Cyclops, who also has a horrifically awful life and has lost the powers lottery. But the thing with Cyclops is that he's grown up with his powers and he's grown up as a superhero, basically in kids superhero cult. And Havoc hasn't. Havoc's powers manifested when he was in his early 20s, when he was he was just out of college and planning to head to grad school. He also has a little bit of control over them, which in this case, I think is almost worse than none. Yeah, I completely agree, because with Cyclops, it's a Boolean state. 
If he's got the glasses on or his visor closed, his powers are going to be fine. If his eyes are open and not covered by ruby quartz, then they're blasting everywhere. And with Havoc, you know, he can keep control over them, except when he can't. Essentially, whenever he's emotionally out of control or too stressed out, they'll start building up and he'll have to blast something. Well, or if they just build up too much. I assume this is just something that happens when he goes outdoors and is running around for whatever period of time he absorbs energy on an ongoing basis. And that state, just how scary and tenuously in control his powers are, I think is really beautifully emphasized by the nature of the powers themselves. I mean, he literally explodes. Yeah. And I mean, when he wakes up from this dream, we see that he's got these concentric circles emanating from his body, which is the visual effect that's always been used for Havoc's powers building up. Yeah. And different artists do this with different degrees of efficacy. And I gotta say, when he's got, you know, gauntlets or a costume or whatever that channels it, It looks so much less cool than this. Sylvester is the main artist on this arc, but this issue, I think, is Brett Blevins, and he's very, very much taking a cue from the guy who really defined the visual look of Havoc's powers, and that's Neil Adams back in the Silver Age. Neil Adams draws Havoc's powers cooler than anybody. He's the person who started doing the sort of concentric, very narrow circles. And yeah, Cyclops' powers are very directed. They're a beam. Even without his visor, they're still directed. They're just a much, much wider aperture. And Havoc's, again, are just literally just explosive waves of force. He can sort of channel them in this case, you know, up into the night sky. But visually, it's very, very clear just how far reaching and how far out of his control they are when they actually go off. Yeah, as he blasts into the sky, basically going Nova, he says, I pray the airspace overhead is clear of planes. Can't see to make sure. Thank goodness the shuttle isn't flying. And he's not kidding. He's not exaggerating. Like, this would be a real and genuine threat. Yeah, there is a story much, 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 much later where in yet another chapter of Alex Summers' life just sucks exponentially to the point that he is pushed into the corner of having to commit actual straight-up fratricide in space. He basically absorbs a star and channels it back at Gabriel. That's how he takes down Vulcan. So once he regains his composure, he's like, all right, I've been having this dream for a long, long time. I need to go back to the X-Mansion. I need to see what's going on. So here's a weird detail. He mentions that he's been having this nightmare ever since he came back from New York. And it's never clear whether this was going to New York to warn the X-Men about the brood or a different earlier trip. It's really ambiguous. And it's weird that it's ambiguous because the brood thing was treated as super urgent. But actually, it's just kind of going to disappear until after the fall of the mutants. I think it might be mentioned a couple times before then. But it's basically off the radar for now. And so Polaris says, well, okay, you should totally go. And I'm totally going to come with you because that's how this whole thing works. And he's like, first of all, it could be dangerous. Second of all, I don't think it's really a big thing. You shouldn't come. I just want to check that everything's okay. Presumably, third of all, one of them has to keep monitoring their research, which is what they're out there doing. But regardless, he goes off on his own, and he's really been ignorant of a lot of what's been going on lately in the world of mutant super teams. Yeah, I think the last time we actually saw him in an X-book before this arc might have been 175 at Scott and Madeline's wedding. Yeah, and the last time he was really doing any kind of superheroing was that one arc with Arcade a long time before. He knows Magneto is in charge of the X-Men, and he's not happy about it, but he doesn't know about the massacre, he doesn't know about X-Factor, he doesn't know about any of what's been going on. And so he shows up at the mansion, and it is deserted. He finds Cerebro in ruins. Sabretooth, I believe, destroyed it a few issues back. And he finds Magneto's date book, which is carefully filled in and mentions that he has an appointment at the Hellfire Club. And I love this detail. Do you think Magneto like just assiduously kept this kind of stuff going when he was a supervillain, too? I think he totally did. And I think it's just as sort of grandiloquent as any of his speeches in his date book. So it's like Sunday, 2 p.m., wield America's nuclear arsenal in the name of mutant supremacy. 
Sunday, 8 p.m., dinner with the kids. But which kids? Because that gets really confusing. Oh, see, I, I always assume if it's dinner with the kids that it's the waiting for the trade version where he's basically stereotypical Jewish grandpa, Magneto, who is needling Pietro and Wanda about how they have not respectively gotten married and given him grandchildren. <laughs> I love this plan. So I assume it's that family dinner situation, at least if we're talking about that era, because with the nuclear arsenal, I'm talking about the X-Men number one appearance. Back in the day. Yeah, back in the old days. Memo, remember to pick up iron filings for signature in Sky. And so Havoc heads off to the Hellfire Club to talk to Magneto to see what's going on, you know, very suspicious the entire time. And when he gets there, Magneto's super cordial. And Emma Frost is kind of a jerk, but she always is. But they just cannot convince Havoc that things are okay. Once Havoc hears that the X-Men and the Hellfire Club are working together, his hackles are totally raised. Oh, with Magneto in charge. And Magneto is so sad at this because no one will believe he's a good guy now. Even when the leopard has truly changed his spots, what lamb will dare believe it? Wait, do leopards eat lambs? Is that a thing? I assume they would, given the opportunity. Well, right, but you know, wouldn't you want to say, like, leopard and gazelle, or wolf and lamb? Maybe. Huh, Magneto probably knows things He's we don't. He's a complicated man. You know, it's also a complicated Marvel Universe. I mean, jeeps fly, after all. Who knows what eats what? So Havoc can't find the X-Men. He leaves the Hellfire Club. He tries calling Muir Island, remembers, you know, that Xavier had a colleague out there, and he gets Callisto, who is about as helpful as you'd expect her to be, which is to say not at all. Says the X-Men aren't around. He asks after Scott. She says to try the Yellow Pages, just as a bus drives by behind him with the X-Factor logo on it. Because apparently, if you believe Uncanny X-Men and New Mutants, the X-Factor ad is on literally every city bus in New York. No, no, I think it's just one city bus. It's just that that city bus only ever drives to dramatically appropriate places. The plot bus? It's the plot bus. I really want to get on that bus. I feel like this podcast is kind of the plot bus. And it drives behind him, so he doesn't actually see it. What he does do is realize that it was ridiculous of him not to bring Lorna with him. And he tries calling her as well, but he can't get in touch with her. The line's cut off, which is something that apparently happens pretty frequently in the desert. So he thinks nothing of it, which is a shame because it is actually a byproduct of something much more sinister. But before we get to that, he decides, okay, well, I guess I'm going to follow Magneto and see what he's really up to, because I'm sure he's up to something. And so he follows him into the sewers while wearing his, you know, black funny head thing Havoc outfit that he says feels really dorky. And again, we get how little Havoc wants to be here. I hate breaking rules. I hate being noticed. Trouble is, that's all the X-Men ever seem to do. Havoc doesn't want to be a superhero. He's got this costume, and I don't even know why he's wearing it, because it doesn't really do anything. It's basically just a meter to tell him how much his powers have built up. I mean, I'm assuming it's just so he's all stealthy-like. I don't know. It's not that stealthy. It's got the dumbest, most ostentatious hat of anyone who's not a supervillain. Well, in a universe where Jeeps can fly, Rachel, anything is possible. It's not possible for Havoc's hat to be cool. Except that. That's a good point. It's also got a mask that it looks like is just there, like, with cross straps to hold the headgear on, but which has the side effect of always making him look really worried. <laughs> I think he always is really worried. He is, yeah, but he'd look like it whether he actually were or not, just as a byproduct of the lines of the mask, which is kind of great. Well, speaking of being worried, he does find Magneto talking to some of the X-Men down there in the sewers, which we, the readers, recognize as the Morlock Tunnels. It's one of those, you know, awkward misunderstandings, misheard bits of dialogue, because what they're doing is discussing, you know, how the X-Men can possibly stay safe in a world with the Marauders. But what he comes up on is a group of X-Men, most of whom he doesn't know around a table, just a storm is saying, the X-Men must die. Now, what she's referring to is what we brought up last episode, which is Plan Omega. You know, the other Plan Omega. The one that doesn't involve destroying the solar system to knock out the Phoenix Force? Right, which is the X-Men faking their own death so the Marauders stop coming after them and their loved ones. Now, Alex at this point has been having these horrific nightmares for weeks and weeks. He's kind of freaked out in general, and when he feels or sees someone approaching from behind him, he just turns around and immediately attacks them with his powers. And so it becomes this fight where he's freaking out being chased by the X-Men, 
He's doing his best to control his panic so he doesn't hurt them. They're doing best to not hurt him until they can fill him in on what's going on. To be fair, he is completely failing to control his panic. The only reason that he does not kill people is basically dumb luck, that the first person who he happens to fire at and hit is Rogue, who's basically invulnerable, and that when he would have hit Dazzler, Longshot manages to knock her out of the way. Right. So eventually the X-Men do catch up with them, and they convince him, hey, dude, just hear what we have to say. Nobody's gonna die. Just- well, they do briefly deliberate whether to kill him first. Like, uh, they do, they have that conversation. That's true. They that's say true. that. What Havoc learns, and we get this mostly through his summary of the dialogue rather than the actual conversation, what he finds out is that the nightmares he's been having are sort of real. He did, in fact, go to the X-Mansion when he was in New York previously. He did, in fact, meet with the X-Men, and then they tried to wipe his memory of it, but it didn't quite take. Now, I'm assuming this is part of this whole Plan Omega thing, but guys, you have to realize this is a terrible idea. Plan Omega is basically just the X-Men panicking and making super bad choices across the board. I mean, that is what it is from start to finish. Yeah. And so Alex takes this surprisingly in stride and listens to the X-Men as they tell him what's been going on. I think at this point, Alex is so utterly horrified by all of the superhero stuff. I mean, again, remember the circumstances under which he interacts with these guys. The first time he gets kidnapped and his mutant powers get jump-started by a guy who is trying to turn himself into a giant pharaoh statue. He's just starting to recover from that when he gets kidnapped by Stephen Lang, the mad scientist who uses him to jump-start the Sentinel program dresses him up in the worst hat ever and leaves him for dead in the wreckage of a lab. At that point, the X-Men take him home and he is immediately set upon by Carl Lycos, Sauron. He learns tentatively to use his powers. He meets Polaris, but all he really wants is to get the hell out of there and finish grad school. He gets sucked into Krakoa for a while. He finally gets away. And what happens? Oh, boom, Eric the Red shows up, possessed. Go fight the X-Men again. This is how Havoc thinks of superheroes, so I feel like him showing up in the Morlock tunnels and having the X-Men threaten to kill him and then be like, yeah, we're just going to all fake our own deaths and everything is horrible. He's like, oh, yes, business as usual then. Business as usual, which is to say, who are you people? What are you doing? Yeah, we mentioned last time we talked about X-Factor that Scott's life is just literally an ongoing anxiety dream, and I think that's pretty much Alex's deal, too. Like, everything is just this horrible ongoing nightmare, or at least everything that intersects it all with the X-Men. Exactly, yeah. But regardless, they tell him what's been going on, and we find most of this out through uh, narration rather than specific dialogue. And then they tell me of how the Marauders slaughtered every Morlock they found in this labyrinth weeks ago, and tried to kill the X-Men as well when they tried to come to the rescue. They speak of a psychic entity named Malice who gets inside your skull and twists thoughts, feelings, actions, and desires into the nastiest of directions. They speak of death and sacrifice. And as I listen, I realize that my days of bystanding on the sidelines are over. ABD is back in action. And so he's like, well, you know, you were talking about killing me so I don't expose your secret, but really, I need to join. I need to help. Things are that dire. It's funny that the mutant massacre is what inspires Havoc to join up with the X-Men, because back in New Mexico, it is still playing out. The Marauders have found and set upon Polaris. Now, what's interesting is that they mention to each other that they don't care about Alex. They are specifically here for Lorna. And we find out why after she neatly trounces them. Polaris is not exactly Polaris. She has been possessed by Malice, and this was a test to see if her powers were sufficient to serve as Malice's long-term vessel. And so, on the last page, as Malice confronts the defeated other marauders who are there, she basically clothes Lorna in this really gothity, gothity costume, gives her amazing giant green wolverine hair, and Oh my god, her hair is so great! Like, 
Malice Polaris has the most ridiculously splendid hair. It's pretty epic. I mean, it would take a long time to get ready after the shower. I'm just saying. It's epic even by Wolverine standards. The amount of teasing and Aquanet going on in that situation is just really, really it's inspiring, man. It totally is. And she says, all right, Marauders, you know what? I've been talking to Sinister. I passed my test. Lorna passed her test. I'm sticking around in this body and I'm in charge. And she is going to stay possessed for a very, very long time. That she is, yeah. I mean, that's really going to be the Polaris that we know and not exactly love for quite a few years to come. So this is a weird, weird arc. This is kind of getting the team together, but the pacing is really strange and the tone is really strange. Yeah, Giant Size X-Men number one, it is not. Right. I think we actually had one commenter mention that reading this as it came out was just sort of this baffling slog of misery. It's true. In hindsight, I really like these issues in some ways simply because they're leading to an era that I really enjoy. They're building a lineup of the X-Men that for me are one of the definitive lineups, which is the Australia lineup. But it very much feels like sort of a liminal era. It doesn't really have its footing, and it kind of feels like it's just treading water waiting for the fall of the mutants in Excalibur, which is when the plot and when the team will really sort of get its shit together and pick back up. Yeah, pretty much. That said, I think it's a really brave move on Claremont's part to do a turnover of basically half his cast in one of the best-selling comic books of the entire era. With that, I think we're pretty much out of time for story for the day, so let us go on to listener questions. Nico asks via our website, I'm working on a 5th edition D&D game where all the characters and story are based around X-Men. Still a fantasy setting and all. Example, Wolverine is a fighter dwarf, Magic is a warlock, Magneto is a wizard using Mage Nito. Ah, yes. One of my players wants Rogue, though, and I'm stuck on how to do her. You're both X-Men and D&D fans. Any suggestions? So we spent a long time thinking about this and then decided to consult a higher power, namely our dungeon master, Harrison Barber. So from the conversation we had, here's what we came up with. So option one is to go with some of the classes and specializations from the player's handbook. So for instance, you could have her as a rogue, which, you know, that's her name, so hey, who takes the arcane trickster specialization so that she could eventually steal powers. That's cool for a sort of a high mobility fighty character, but it would take forever for her to get the power stealing thing, so maybe not. Or she could be a monk who takes the way of four elements to combine punching things with a variety of kind of very mutanty type powers, but that's a little off theme. Or maybe she could even be a druid who goes for Circle of the Moon if you're going more for flavor than mechanics, raised as an outsider, but then your mechanics are totally off. So option two is to basically house rule it, hack the system, pull in some mechanics from older editions. Harrison suggests that you could pull in the old Factotum class who could spend power points to copy other classes' abilities, maybe change it so it's only classes who are present in a given encounter to make it seem more like Rogue, or you could modify the Vampiric Touch spell so that it still drains hit points but grants Rogue power from the target instead of recovering her own health. Or you could look at old settings like Dark Sun or Red Steel, where characters had special powers sort of on top of their classes, basically use mutants as a special playable race who would have a special power on top of whatever else they could do. Whatever you do, though, we'd recommend making sure that Rogue isn't too different in terms of power level or complexity from the rest of the player's characters, and remember D&D is progression-based, so she doesn't have to have everything to start with. So, there you go. Probably way more complicated than you had in mind, but there you have it. Steve asks on Tumblr, What do you think makes for an interesting power set? Should it be broad and powerful or oddly specific and limited? How much should it reflect the user's personality? Man, so I'm really glad we talked about Havoc this episode because I think he's a great example of a power set that is interesting in terms of both action and narrative. For me, a good power set is one that informs and interacts in interesting ways with the character's personality that can be used as a story hook that has action applications or narrative applications in general if it's not an action story. And Havix is great on all of those points. 
it also does a really good job of both relating him to and contrasting him with, you know, the most obvious point of comparison, which is his brother. So, I mean, for me, that's kind of what I'm looking for in terms of a power set. I want something that's going to be at least roughly relevant, even if its relevance is that it's useless. So I'm on a similar but not identical page. I think the example I would use for a character with a well-done power set is actually Magic, Ileana Rasputin. Oh, interesting. Her power itself, when you get down to it, is kind of generic. It's just teleporting. Lots of superheroes can teleport. But there's an interesting and strange twist on it, which impacts her backstory and personality extremely heavily, which is that she can only teleport through a demon realm that she grew up in and sort of has to do with the corruption growing inside her. That makes sense to me, and it works for me with magic, specifically because she grew up in limbo and because she was already being corrupted by it when her powers manifested, so it makes sense that her powers are tied to limbo. In general, though, I would probably steer away from characters whose powers are related to a specific object, for instance. I mean, Silver Samurai is probably a pretty good example there. Or whose powers are too directly a play on their personality or name or something like that. It makes sense to me that who people are would to some extent influence their powers, but there's a point at which it starts to feel just really pat and cutesy that I really dislike. But I guess what it comes down to is that a character's powers should be what makes them cool, absolutely, but it should also have something to do with the conflicts or problems they have in their personality in their story. You should have powers that serve the story, not just that are a cool thing a character can do in a fight. I think power balance is also important. The powers that I think are cool and work very much depend on the lineup of characters in question. You know, we talked about this in terms of D&D and balancing a party, but I think it's also true of a narrative arc and superhero team. You want to have characters whose powers aren't redundant, you know, don't basically overwrite each other, or if they are, use that and be able to use that as a narrative hook. I mean, I think what it comes down to for both of us is that powers should serve the story rather than vice versa. Absolutely. So we are out of time, I believe. Rachel, take us out. Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in the very smoky Portland, Oregon, and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, KaijuCast. New episodes come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, and at rachelandmiles.com. Check out rachelandmiles.com for all kinds of extra content, episode companion posts, essays, fan art, X-Men evolution recaps, and much, much more. Our show is completely listener-supported and ad-free and is made possible by our generous Patreon supporters. If you're not a supporter and would like to become one, then please check out the link at the top of rachelandmiles.com. Next week, I'll be working the Dark Horse booth at PAX Prime in Seattle. Remember, we record eight days out, so you're actually, I think, doing that as you're listening to this episode. I'm in two places at once. I'm Jamie Madrox. So if you happen to be at PAX, then please come by and say hi. Meanwhile, I'll be flying solo in the studio, taking the podcast back to school, specifically to Bayville High, with special guest writer and producer Robert N. Skier, who is, among other things, the co-creator of X-Men Evolution. (laughs) 